Amen. Well, let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. And we're going to read the whole chapter. But after last week, it's shorter. And so I think we'll survive. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, reading down to verse 12. When Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna and the name of the other, Rechab. Sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth, for Beroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Banna set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, and as he was talking, his, taking his noonday rest, and he came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head... And they went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require the blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is chapter 4 and the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning. As always, a great time to be together on the Lord's day, under the Lord's word, excited and eager for what he's going to do in our presence. If you uh, have a Bible, you're going to want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. So I want to invite you uh, an opportunity to do that right now. And as you're doing that, I want to introduce myself. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa. And it's a joy to have you with us. I just met someone in the lobby who's been coming for three weeks. I love the fact that... Um, I try to make myself accessible to, to just meet the new folks, and it's just a blessing to see all the people God's bringing. We're excited. If you're new, we're in the middle of this series on 2 Samuel. Uh, we're taking it kind of as a narrative book, um, and so bigger chunks than maybe a didactic book, like a teaching book, like um, the epistles of Paul, for example. We'd go a much shorter uh, sections, but we can encompass it in these bigger chunks, and uh, we're in chapter 4 today. And the title of the message, I'm, I'm pretty proud of this title. The title of the message is uh, Thy Kingdom Come-ish. You know, because we say that, don't we? I, I mean ish in the sense that we use it. When someone's almost right, we kind of go, yeah, ish. How many say that, by the way, or is that just me? You use that every once in a while? It, it's a way in our language to say a kind of. In a way, but not exactly thy kingdom come-ish, but of course we also know it's a play on our buddy, my friend and yours, the king of the north, Ish-bosheth, whose death in chapter 4 by two opportunistic tough guys opens this pathway 
for David to finally assume the kingship of all of Israel. And while that is opened up by the work of these two opportunistic individuals, David doesn't approve of the method they used, evidently. And maybe to borrow the words of Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, David wasn't cool with someone committing evil that good may result. Seemed like he had a problem with that. What I find interesting about that is I can't believe David wasn't weakened in that conviction after it's been roughly 25 years since Yahweh anointed him king all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. Think about that for a second. So we've you know, gone through all these um, um, chapters so far of 2 Samuel. We spent a, a large chunk of 2019 going through 1 Samuel. We get to 1 Samuel 16. That's where you meet David. You know, they have this kind of male beauty pageant. You know, all six of the sons come forward. They're like, you got anybody else? Oh, yeah, but we didn't even bring him. He's out in the field. He's hanging out. We didn't even think you'd want to see him. And God God goes, that's my guy. Bring him in. Yahweh anoints him king. And for 25 years, how many are waiting for something from the Lord to do in their lives? You've been waiting for 25 years? Somebody to get saved? Something to turn Somebody be reconciled back into relationship with you. You're like, I've been waiting how long? Six months. Okay, well, put this one on. 25 years. And let me just tell you, David could have never guessed in his wildest dreams that this would be the trajectory of his pathway to the kingship. Never, never would have seen this coming like this. And let me just remind you, like David, like David's descendant. Okay? And what I mean by that is the path of Jesus, David's descendant, to the crown was the cross. And I think sometimes when we talk about following Jesus, following David's descendant, we can hear it be told to us that when you give your life to Jesus, it's going to be easy, and it's going to be smooth, and everything's going to kind of fall into place. And then you actually become a Christian, and you're like, they sold us a bunch of garbage. How many of your life got worse when you became a Christian? You all of a sudden had enemies you didn't have before. You had family wanting to kick you out and remove you from the family because of your faith. It could go on and on, and yet we follow a crucified Savior. And so we must not forget that like David who waited 25 years, we are a people waiting until the kingdom come of David's descendant. And in that time, it shouldn't surprise us in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 that we are a people afflicted. You walking in some of that today? Paul says, we are a people afflicted in every way, but listen to this, we are not crushed. Perplexed? Yes. Maybe some of you right now perplexed at what is going on, but we are not driven to despair. Persecuted? Many of our brothers and sisters are being persecuted. Maybe some of you in some ways are being persecuted for your faith. Yes, but not forsaken. Struck down? Yes, At times, of course, but not destroyed. And I love this. You and I are always, in case you're like, life is hard as a Christian. Well, listen, you are always carrying in your body the death of Jesus, ideally so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in your bodies. So don't forget that. In your waiting, in your heart, David has been waiting, and yet... In the waiting for the return of the kingdom, for the, for the coming together in David's sense of the kingdom, for us, the return of the king, we go back to 2 Samuel and realize, here's what God has been showing us in his word. As we wait, even in the heart, no power can overcome God's kingdom. No person can fully thwart God's kingdom. Try as they may, they will not thwart the kingdom. And today, here's the big idea, God's kingdom will not be established by a rogue redeemer. God's kingdom will not be established by a rogue redeemer. He does not need anyone's help. So you have this situation in which there is a couple of rogue redeemers looking to bring this good news to the king. I've merged the kingdoms together. Yeah, David's not going to be stoked about the way that goes down. And yet we need to be reminded yet in all things, God is sovereignly ordaining all things that be 
to bring about his purposes to their appointed end, and he even uses 2 Samuel chapter 4. So I want to give you a breakdown. Here's where we're going. We're going to talk about it like this because this is how the text breaks it down. The players, who's involved in chapter 4, the play, we're going to see this courageous moment. You're going to see how the word courageous, so get, some, get some quotes around the outside. Not so courageous after we explain it. So we're going to go talk about the players involved, the play for the throne, and, and really some posh positions in David's kingship. And then we're going to talk about the perspective. We finally get most of the application in the third point. So if you're used to kind of how we get application at every point, we're going to have to do a little teaching and let the text breathe and explain some stuff to us, and then we'll apply it. That'll be the perspective. And then finally, we'll get to the prosecution. David deals with the injustice. No injustice is going to establish God's kingdom, and we will see that today. So first thing we're going to see, you want to write this down, the players in verses 1 to Four, one to four. What we've seen in the first few chapters of 2 Samuel is that man's onslaught of opposition to God's kingdom, all of them have failed, right? Last week we dealt with the three, uh, if the section from 2-1 to 5-5 is all about how the kingship comes under David, we see the opposition with Ish-bosheth getting established in chapter 2, verse 4-ish, and gotcha, and, and then we see Abner from about 212 to 339 attempting multiple, give it his best shot to thwart God's kingdom, didn't work. And now we're at this place where Ishbosheth's going to get taken out. Let me just remind you where we are in the northern kingdom. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Abner's now dead. And that's like taking out your all-star. Okay, you're not winning the championship with that guy out. You know what I'm saying? For all you sports fans out there. For everyone that hates sports, I am so sorry. Today is going to have a few sports things in it. This is like losing your star player. Abner was really the king, right? He was the guy in power. He goes out, everyone freaks out. Look at verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, he's the puppet king. Abner's working him, although not all the way. He fought back a little bit in the last message we talked about that. When Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. That's going to be important because his courage is going to go out. Other people are going to have courage. We're going to talk about in a second. It says that his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Literally, it means his hands drooped. Or it also could be understood of he lost heart. And Israel was dismayed. Israel was troubled. What were they troubled over? They were troubled over sensing that their kingdom had been trumped, which is not unlike a word used interestingly in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 about David's descendants. So get this. When they heard about Abner's death, it was troubling to them because it was the sense that their kingdom had been trumped. When we hear about Jesus' life, Herod's troubled because he realizes his kingdom has been trumped. So there are little whispers that David, as significant as he is, is paving the way to a descendant who will also trump the greater kingdoms of his day. They understand that they can't retain the kingship now, for sure not now. Their hope is about as strong as Abner is alive, which is, he's not alive. He is dead. He is very dead. And so you got to do a player inventory at some point, right? And you got to assess your team. And you're like, okay, our best player, it's worse. It's worse than saying your best player is injured. This is an ACL, right? This isn't a torn Achilles. He's dead, okay? When your best player is dead, you're in trouble. And then you look at other, like, role players on the team. And uh, you could say, like, okay, Ishbosheth, was he a starter? Yeah, but he was kind of like a decoy, right? He just, you, he got the ball, and he was passing the ball. He wasn't, he wasn't the main player. He wasn't the one going to do something miraculous and get them out of the scenario and, you know, round up everybody and take on David's forces. This wasn't going to be Ishbosheth that was doing that. And so they look at their starters, they're like, this isn't looking good at all. And then they look down their bench, and they're like, we're going to lose this game. Because the only person that they can sub in, we learn about in verse 4, is Jonathan had a son who was 
crippled in his feet. And by the way, there is this play going on that as we're learning about this crippled son of Jonathan, we're also seeing in that same light the crippling of Saul's kingdom at the same time. That the best that Saul's kingdom has now to stand up and defend what is remaining of the potential of their kingdom is in a crippled son of Jonathan as crippled as the kingdom of Saul is crippled. He was, listen to this, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So we're talking 1 Samuel 31 when all that stuff went down. Five years old. So he's now, I'm thinking it's about, he's like a preteen right now. So Israel's hope, the only heir that we know about that's left at this point is this five-year-old, now probably 12-year-old, who's nurse at the time he was five, hears the news about Saul and Jonathan dying, takes him up, they flee, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. We don't know exactly. It says his feet became lame, like if that's drop foot syndrome, could be. We don't need to get technical about that. What we need to understand is as they peer down the bench of who could possibly take on David's forces, anyone capable of going to war and being a legit contender for the throne, they knew they were in serious, serious trouble. And this is precisely why Israel was dismayed. Now, that being said, there will always be someone looking to capitalize on a situation like this for their own personal gain. Always, always, always. Let's meet these characters, shall we? Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna. And the name of the other, Rechab. Sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. And so they had basically been absorbed within the Benjamin tribe. They had conquered that area, and you get to meet these two individuals. And this is like, there's no hope except for these two guys. Meet your friendly neighborhood raiding captains. And now, um, anyone, raiders aren't nice people, okay? Some of you don't think raiders like the team, although that's arguable even there, am I right? <laughs> Where's Ralph right now to kill me? One of, my, one of our interns here loves the raiders. So I will say this at the 9, but not at the 11, is what I found out. He's not here. There's, is he here? Where is he? There he is. Ralph, you are a very nice man. Raider fans, I mean, they're raiders, right? What do you do? These guys come in, and they plunder, and they take, and they're kind of like the enforcers. You know, to borrow another sports analogy from my child, they're kind of like the Bash Brothers, right? They're the guys that get in there and just get some stuff done, a little bit shady, but this is how this works. This is all that's left. This is what they've got. Look down their bench. They're not even, there's players now, or there's, there's fans coming out of the stadium going, I'll play for the team. And they're beating up all the security guards to get into the game. That's who these guys are. This is important to understand. These are the rogue redeemers. These are the guys that are going to come in and help David out. We have to recognize the bar for Saul's house is so low. <laughs> and then when they pull this shtick they're about to pull, we can hardly call them heroes in the end. Let's look at the players. Or excuse me, the play. What's the play that these guys do? The rogue redemption that comes in, verses 5 to 7. The play. What's their play? Well, they're seeing the whole kingdom going down hard and fast. So what do they do? What many of us would do. Take matters into our own hands. Now, verse 5, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, Rechab and Banna set out, and I love this, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. If anyone ever wanted a defense that naps were biblical, here you go. Okay? Who needs that? I know somebody needed to hear that today. 
Thank you, Lord. Naps are biblical. I saw it. There's no judgment on naps, just that it happened. How many, when it gets a little warm, in the middle of the day, a solid 20-minute or changes the dynamic of the day, okay? Maybe even in my house, potentially, all right? And then I just wrote a biography that one of my heroes, when he got older, took 20-minute naps in his own office as a pastor, something I aspire to in my future, okay? That's amazing. I, even some commentators, I have to say, that some commentators are like, he was lazy, he was napping in the midday. I'm like, I don't know, I want to hold on to this verse. I don't see anything in there that says he's lazy. He may be lazy, but a nap doesn't mean you're lazy in the middle of the day. Can I get an amen? amen. Come on. That was so not the point of that verse. <laughs> and yet, it's kind of the point of the verse. You'll see it in a second, okay? Because we get to verse 6, and now verse 6 and verse 7 read weird, don't they? Didn't read that there was kind of a hiccup there. You read it, and you're like, wait, is he saying it again? And maybe you're tempted to think, not tempted, um, maybe you're just thinking it's a translation issue. It's just kind of a butchered translation. Listen to verses 6 and 7. So it says, they came into the house, into the midst of the house, as if to get wheat. So they're like, playing it off like, yeah, we're the bread guys. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rahab and Banna, his brother, escaped. And then you feel like you're having deja vu. You're like, man, I, I may be losing it, but they come back. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his room, they struck him, and you're like, you just said that. So, so what's going on? This is, this is typical Hebrew narrative, guys where they will set up a situation, set up a scene, give us the fact of what's going on, and then repeat it in a later verse with some sort of added detail. So what's happening? In verse 6, what we're left wondering is what? Here's what we hear. They came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. They stabbed him in the stomach, and they escaped. What are we left wondering? Is he dead? Did he survive? Some people can survive a knife wound, right? Some of you are like, I could survive it. Yeah, okay. Depends how you get stabbed. You're asleep. Remember, you're asleep. So we want to know. Verse 7 answers the question. It expands it for us. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. So we weren't clear in verse 6 if he was dead. Now we're real clear. He, he gone. He is very gone. He is dead. And when you, when you say struck put to death and beheaded, you are not alive anymore. Clear, correct? So the added detail in the Hebrew narrative here is that we find out they, he is officially dead. This is the king. But we also get a repeated detail from verse 5. Remember the nap thing? They set out about the heat of the day, came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. Then we get in the Hebrew narrative, verse 7, which gives us the added details, but also repeated details. The author is telling us something. When they came to the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they're emphasizing that again. So what do we get? We get that he's dead, but what do we get as well? We get a repeated detail that he is in his bed, napping. So, so let me give you the scenario. You call your parents after a tournament and be like, yeah, we won, it was great. And you find out later your team had won because you guys had, a, the other team had forfeited. You're not celebrating that, right? It's bizarre to celebrate and write home about that. Yeah, it was awesome, we totally dominated. The other team didn't play, but it's besides the point, we won. Like if, if I, so my son is seven years old and he's a pretty good little athlete. But if we play one-on-one -on -one and I were to capture it all on my iPhone and throw some of the highlights up of me just swatting the snot out of him in, the in like whatever our one-on-one -on -one game was, to put that up on social media, I'm not expecting heroic, congratulatory, great, pack, yo, Scott, that was awesome. Well done, man. I bet he didn't even score a point on you. Yeah, huh? Because he's seven. And there's a day where that's going to shift. But we're not talking about that right now. I'm in my prime, and he's seven, okay? But no one's going, man, excellent basketball skills, well done. Okay, the same thing is going on here. The writer is tipping his cards to show us before he even gets it in writing what's going on. And what is he saying? Wow, what courage these men have. They're so brave. Pretended to be the bread truck guys. Walking in like, hey, we got an order to pick up. <gasps> While the dude is asleep, 
you're so brave. Like, listen, this is not something to write home about, but the funny thing is they do. They do, in a sense, write home about it. Because David has awareness of the situation in verse 11 that he wouldn't know unless what? Somebody told him. You think the Bash brothers told David? You wouldn't believe it. We snuck in and then we killed them all for you. And he's like, I, I can't believe you're literally bragging about taking out a guy that couldn't even defend himself. That's what's happening here. This is not courage. This is cowardice. This is not a sign of strength, but self-serving to gain an advantage. And let me just add something here. The road to the throne has been a bloody one. Would you agree? There's been this constant taking, taking, taking in order to gain. Take a life to gain the throne. Take a life to gain the upper hand to the throne. What a contrast to Jesus. It's like as the kingdom is playing out, there's take to gain, take to gain, take to gain. Jesus Christ comes, the David's descendant, and he gives to gain. He doesn't shed other people's blood. He sheds his own blood in our place for our sin. This is the Savior that we worship. This is a far different kingdom than every other kingdom of man that the world has ever known. You want to gain? We think you got to take to gain. Jesus says you got to give to gain. Which, by the way, as I'm thinking about, this is the heart we want to have towards you guys as church planners. We want to give our best away that we might gain for the kingdom. That's always a threatening thing, to give your best away. But this is how the kingdom works. We give our best away. We train them up, not so that they stay here, and we just build this monument to ourselves. We train people up, and then we give them the way, give them away in order for the kingdom to expand and grow. This is the heart of the kingdom of God. And I'm not modeling it like I'm perfect. We've had to have those conversations like, really, Max, you sure you don't want to stay here? You don't want to hang out? Now that you're all trained up, all the work, not even benefiting us. All right, but the kingdom, but the kingdom. But Jesus is a giver to gain. We're going to be givers to gain. And might I just add a little something in here too for us as we get to the perspective we're really going to draw the application. Can I just say, the author is giving us a little sanctified sarcasm here in this repetition. Can I just say that there are multiple parts in God's word where there is a, I'm going to call it sanctified sarcasm right in the word of God. Almost to just smack us upside the head a little bit, kind of like smelling salts would be to wake up to our hypocrisy, to wake up to our self-deluded perception of the things we do and the reasons why we do them. My prayer all week has been, God, would you use the word and some of its sanctified sarcasm to help us here reinterpret our actions and maybe call them more what they actually are. We think they're noble and godly. And if they were set against the word of God, I think we would find them to fall well short in some places. God help us, a little sanctified sarcasm from the word of God. It's harder to do that human to human. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are like, man, I'm working on my sarcasm. I've got to be more godly, and that's true. Sanctified sarcasm is hard, but Jesus did it quite well, and the author is doing it quite well. You are so courageous for beating your seven-year-old in one-on-one, right? You, you hear the sarcasm. But let's get the perspective. the perspective. Here's what could have happened. Ray Cobb and Banna, they're, they're big names. I might call them R&B every once in a while, just no. They, they could have just seen what was going on. They could have given support to David, bowed a knee and just said, we surrender. Right? That could have been the play. It wasn't the play. It's not the play they used. No, they realized that as the kingdom was collapsing, their raiding mentalities took over, and they thought, man, if we can bring Ishbosheth's head to David, we might gain ourselves an advantage. Uh, turns out they missed the memo from chapter one. Is anyone realizing that? Someone should have sent them the memo. If only they had fax machines back then, am I right? Would have been nice if they had gotten that. We're even beyond fax machines. They're... they're wanting to get ahead of their competition. 
get some posh seats in David's kingdom. You know what I'm saying? So they headed over to David. You know how long that journey is? Do you know how heavy a head is? You ever like done abs after not doing abs for a long time and just lifting your head? You're like, my abs aren't sore. My neck is sore right here. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Sweet. I remember not doing abs and coming back for preseason. And I was like, wow, my abs don't hurt at all. My neck hurts because bringing my head up and down for abs is brutal. Turns out your head is heavy. They carried that head for 80-ish miles, thinking that David would be head over heels about <laughs> this, right? And they could read the headlines. Saul, David, R&B, unite the two kingdoms. All 80 miles, they're like, I know that's how be how it goes. I know it. I know it. And then their arms sore, so they're, I don't even know how that works. You carry it in a box. What do you? Doesn't matter. I'm sorry for that many puns, my goodness. Then Rahab and Banna, his brother, escaped. And it says that they took his head in verse 7, and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here it is, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Here's where the rogue redeemer part comes in. You ready? This is the Lord's work. The Lord did it. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So, you ever heard of the word spin? You know, someone could put their spin on some. Oh, that's, that's an interesting spin on that. So we might use the word narrative. You know, the narrative over something where you take a scenario and you run it through a very interesting perspective. One that, funnily enough, seems to make you the hero. There's quite a bit of spin going on here. Am I okay with using that word? Does everyone know what I'm saying when I say that? Spin always starts with some truth. Would you agree? That's why it works. But then it's built into like, here's how I'm going to use this. Here's how I'm going to frame it. Here's how I want people to see it. Now, it's true. He says, saw your enemy had sought your life. That's true. Sought David's life, but David what? Every single time David had an opportunity to take out Saul, what did he do? He refrained from it. He trusted the Lord. The Lord is going to deliver him. The Lord is his redeemer. That's what we're going to see in verse 9. But before we get there, I need to make sure we're applying this to our own lives. He's trying to, that is, R and B are trying to spin this in a spiritual way. The Lord has avenged my Lord. So now they're taking David, being like, you're my Lord. Do we not already cover that? Anyway, I did some awesome stuff for you already. By the way, this is all the Lord to help my Lord, right? I mean, it's, you, you were over there. You're two raiding captains. You're, you're full of it. And yet what was going on here is nothing more than baptizing their sin in theology. So, so here's some application. Are you ready for this? Because this happens all the time. By the way, the more this happens, the better pastors get at catching this. We have an, a, a weird ability because of our flesh and because of our sin to baptize our sin in theology. In this case, they're baptizing their treachery in theology. I'll give you another way to see it. Sanitizing sin in your spiritual interpretation of it. You try to clean your sin. You try to sanitize it to your benefit. You spin it with some spiritual interpretation, thus using theology as a cover for sin and folly to justify yourself instead of to be humbled. One commentator on this section wrote, quote, an opportunity to do evil is never a gift from God. So I'll just give you some examples um, how sin gets baptized in theology. I even heard this recently. Um, in defense of a particular sexual lifestyle. Um, okay, and if you want to put God's spin on it, fine. This is the way God made me. 
That, my friends, is sanitizing sin and spiritual interpretation. Uh, where do you find that in the Bible? Can I get a chapter and verse on that, please? Hmm. No, I don't think so. You can't tell me God actually wants to change my so-and-so in my life. Oh, I can tell you God's really adamant about changing everybody. And he's not content until we're all like Jesus. D.A. Carson gave a whole bunch of examples of how we do this, just so I can maybe just start going, because you're like, it's not me. I don't do that. I don't do that. You do it. You do it. I'm going to try to help you find one. Okay, right? You do this. This is our heart's proclivity. We want to sanitize our sin. God, help us. Okay, so here we go. You drift towards compromise, and you spin it like you're being tolerant. You drift towards obedience, and you spin it like it's freedom. Excuse me, disobedience. You, spin, you drift towards disobedience, and you spin it like it's freedom. You drift towards superstition, and you call it faith. You cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and you call that relaxation. You slouch toward prayerlessness. Great opportunity tonight. Second Sunday, baby. Cannot wait. My heart needs it. So I'm just like, are we going to start more ministries in this church? Are we going to start more ministries? We're going to pray more. And, and so we're praying, and our prayers are on fire. We're not starting a lot of other things. We're going to be prayer-committed people. You slouch towards prayerlessness and delude yourself into thinking you have escaped legalism. At least I'm not a legalist. Two times at church on one day, I'm not a legalist. You slide towards godlessness and convince yourself you have been liberated. These are all examples from a quote by D.A. Carson. I was talking, talking to Pastor Isaac recently who, praise God for Pastor Isaac, hasn't he been a blessing to our church in a very short period of time? What a gift he has been to us. And he said this to me, just if you took his entire um, career, I don't know how to say it, career of counseling, and were to just boil everything down. He says some of the hardest counseling cases he's done have been the self-proclaimed theological experts that come into the room, hands down. Listen, we are passionate about theology here, but if your theology hasn't hit the ground with you being humbled before a holy God, you do not understand your theology, how well you can articulate it. I don't care if you can judge every last thing about what we do or don't do a doxa or anywhere else. If your theology, which I commend you for and we ought to be in pursuit of, and theology is not the bad thing, this is the bad thing, and your theology is not humbling you to the floor, is not opening up the possibility because of the sinfulness of man and the glory of God and the huge discrepancy between the two, that you may actually be more responsible for the things in your life than you think you are, your theology is not working for you like you think it like like it should be working for you. And yet we can spin it and we can make it look pretty. And we need to look at our lives and we need to say, God help us. Help us to find the areas that we're spinning something as spiritual that is really a cover for darkness. Where is it in your life? Where are you doing that? Where are you tempted to do that? Let me give you some examples. Where are you tempted to justify doing something that has a godly end, but doing it in a worldly way. Where are you justifying that? You're like, but God would be blessed because this would be the end. And so, and he's, here, here's the thing too. Then reading it like he, and he opened the door to it. God opens doors. It, not that door, ever. This is why we don't read doors and be like, he just opened all the doors. That's all I did. I just walked through the open doors right into a pit. We're fleshing this out. We've got to flesh this out in council. We've got to flesh this out with the word of God. God, help us to do this. Here's another one. Using God as an argument for your own sinful actions. By the way, when you do that, that is straight up blasphemous. We think blasphemy is about, oh, oops, I, I use God's name with a cuss word, and, and for sure, that is blasphemous. But we've got to get out of, I used God's name like a cuss word, and get into any time you take up God's name in a way that doesn't rightly represent him, you're being blasphemous. You put this spin on your treachery and all of a sudden say, oh, God's involved in it. You are blaspheming God's holy name. 
And then I will say this, because our hearts are inclined to want to be our own self-saviors, we need to understand this, sanitizing sin is also a means of self-salvation. It is. It's where this goes. Because listen, there are two ways to approach the kingdom of God. One is thinking you're a gift. The other is receiving it as a gift. It's one of the two. You either think you're a gift or you're receiving the kingdom as a gift. There's nothing in between. Some of you may say, I'm over the God thing. I don't even think I'm a gift. I just don't believe in God. I don't even believe in me. Well, listen, if you're not receiving it as a gift, you're in the other category. And so you have an opportunity. You either see yourself as a savior and a redeemer or you surrender to Jesus as the savior and the redeemer. They saw themselves as the redeemer. We don't need help. We'll just sanitize our sin. Listen, don't sanitize your sin. Listen to me. Repent of your sin and return to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Or you're going to become like these guys who are saying, the Lord has avenged you and you owe us one. If you set yourself up as a rogue redeemer, as a self-savior, trying to sanitize your sin as a gift for the king, you will get justice from the king. That's huge. I'll say it again. If you set yourself up as a rogue redeemer, as a self-savior, trying to sanitize your sin to give it to the king, you're going to get justice from the king. This is how this works. So what happens? They come to David, and they're like, hey, man, the Lord's avenged you. You're welcome. You owe me one. And David's like, uh, no. And here's why. Verse 9. David answered Rahab, Rahab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. I love that. He's almost saying right out of the gates, I won't be indebted to you or anyone else. God doesn't need your help. He has redeemed me. I trust him to deliver me from every adversity. He has never failed me. He won't start now. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? How did he know? They were probably bragging about it. He was asleep and we killed him. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Here's what I love about this situation taking place. There's something about this. When you're walking with the Lord closely and someone puts the Lord's name on something that isn't of the Lord, you can immediately smell it, can't you? When you're walking faithfully with the Lord, you can just tell right away, oh, you're masquerading and you're trying to spin this in a certain way. It becomes so evident and so clear. And one of the things we realize in this example from David is that intimate memory of God's redemptive work insulates our hearts against imposters. It insulates our hearts against taking and receiving something as from the Lord that is very much not from the Lord. David is walking in intimate relationship. Notice what he says. The Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. This is God in all things. God in every adversity. Do you see that in your life? Is that how you would testify? You're not confused by these guys trying to offer you a favor or something God did that's really baptized treachery. No, you're like, hey, listen, I don't trust man. I trust in God. He's delivered me out of every adversity, which means I see God in all of the hard stuff and not just in all of the good stuff. I see his hand at work and he's mindful of it. We need to be mindful of it. We need to be in remembering people. We are so quick to forget. We need to revisit our redemption. We need to revisit the gospel regularly. We need to revisit the cross where Jesus, the Davidic descendant, suffered and died in our place for our sin, becoming what 1 Corinthians 1 tells us is wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If he's become our redemption, we don't need a rogue redeemer to save us. 
not eternally, not out of a situation in our lives. You don't need a rogue redeemer. You have the redeemer who is committed to you, who is wisdom to us from God. Do you believe it? Then don't trust in the means of man to accomplish what God will do for you if you trust in him. Hold fast and forget not his benefits. I love Psalm 103. David wrote, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Do you know him? Do you know him? Did you know, Christian, you've been forgiven of all your iniquity? He says, he heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God, help us have a fresh memory of our redemption, and we won't be prone to reaching out and taking something that's not true redemptive work on our behalf. David was dialed in. David was mindful of what had already happened when the Amalekite came and said, hey, good news, or bad news, but I tried to help so that it, Saul didn't get taken out by someone worse. I stepped in, and David said, it didn't go well for him. How much more will there be justice for you who is unrighteous, killing a righteous man? And then we see the prosecuting. We see the prosecuting. And here's where it comes. He comes before David. David responds. You set yourself up as a rogue redeemer, as a self-savior, trying to sanitize your sin as a gift for God, and you will get justice. The reason why I've said that now three times is because that will be the testimony of many people. Oh, he knew the Lord. He knew the Lord. You know there's a lot of people that are going to say, Lord, Lord, go read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. There will be loads of people. It's going to be heartbreaking. So many people think they're following Jesus, and what they're doing is they're leveraging the whole Christian thing to spin their life in a certain way where they can sanitize their behavior, call themselves Christian, have this vague testimony, but that they hold on to for dear life without any transformation evidencing that that testimony is genuine, and I'm just concerned for people like that. I'm not happy about saying it. I want to see you get saved, but to get saved, you're going to have to get out of self-savior mode. You're going to have to get out of sanitizing your sin, and you're going to have to repent of it before the Lord. You're going to actually have to see sin for what it is and get over the scheming that's taking place. All, all the scheming has paved the way for David to take the throne, but notice David doesn't cheer at how the throne is basically given to him. By the next chapter, he's going to get the throne. But he didn't like the way this went down, and so what does he do? He enacts justice. Talk about an idea backfiring. Wait, we have Proverbs on this, right? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This one way backfired. It almost reminds me of Matthew 26, 24, too, about Jesus and Judas. And it says that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, God is sovereign over the way that Jesus was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. But, he says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So is God sovereign over chapter 4? Oh, he's ordaining every last moment to accomplish his purposes, but woe to that man through whom these things take place. So what does David do? David commanded his young men and they killed them, R&B, Gonzo, and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So different treatments for these two different situations. You're like, what, what's with the chopping off of the limbs? It was a sign. We chop off your hands as a sign that you're not going to kill a man with those hands again. We chop off the feet as a sign that you're not going to run to celebrate that with your enemies now turned friends. And we'll post you up as a sign for everyone to be aware of and reminded that God's righteous judgment would be meted out for unrighteousness in Hebron, where David is king, justice reigns. 
And just here, in this little example, we see that Yahweh's king justly redressed wrongs. It's a small sample size, yes, but it is speaking and paving the way to a more substantive justice that David's promised descendant will enforce. That like David, soon Jesus will consummate the kingdom promised to him. And Davidic justice par excellence will be enacted through the entire earth. Are we ready for that? It is going to be a glorious day. But it hasn't come yet. On that day when Jesus Christ returns, that will not be the day to decide whether you're in or out on Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. And here's what I thank God for in the midst of this whole story. Thank God the king himself stepped down from his throne to take on flesh in order that the judgment we rightly deserve for our sin and seeking to sanitize it could rightly fall on him. Thank God that in him we can be forgiven. That God made him to be, no, who, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, for that. What love poured out on people, that the king who wasn't responsible for the injustice died an unjust death to save unjust people so that we could be welcomed by grace into his kingdom and ever increasingly transformed into the image of the king until the king returns in all his glory. You receive the kingdom as a gift of God's grace and celebrate for eternity, or you put yourself forward as the gift and face judgment from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you that we can see this playing out even in a text like 2 Samuel chapter 4. So many parallels to the Davidic descendant. So many great connections in scripture. But more than anything, God, I pray that you would you would by your spirit just help us to see where it is that we're accommodating sin, where we're sanitizing it, where we're cleansing it to make it look different than it is. God, where is it allowing us to treat our spouses poorly, to treat our friends poorly, to lie about things in our business? We think it's a good end. Well, it'll allow me to provide for my family, and so that's a good end, but it's a bad means. God, help us to not be deceived by the enemy, by the pattern of this world, and instead to be transformed through the renewing of our minds, forgetting not all your benefits. And they are many for us, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of Jesus as king. So we don't rely upon ourselves. We have rejected ourselves as the gift, and we receive Jesus as the gift. May he be the one we see, savor, and celebrate as we testify to him in song. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.